RadioInfluence.com. You've seen Chef Brian Duffy on Spike TV's Bar Rescue, NBC's Today Show, and opening bars and restaurants all over the world. Now he's sharing his stories, his friends, and some tips of the trade he's learned along the way. Prepare yourself to get Duffified. This is Duffified Live with Chef Brian Duffy on Radio Influence. Everybody, good morning! Duffified Live Friday, that's what's going on. And holy shit, the week I have for you. Can't wait, can't wait. I have been home now for... Uh, about 10 days. I'm unbelievably excited about that. I don't have a crazy travel schedule, although my schedule starts again on Sunday morning. So it's Friday right now for y'all and uh, my schedule starts hitting pretty hard. Um, I am honored and I am lucky and I am humbled and I am uh, in constant gratitude for the fact that I get to be a part of a group of chefs that get to travel all over the world and thank our troops by feeding them in their bellies. I'm a part of a group of chefs called the Mess Lords. And we travel all over the world to bases and ships and installations all over the world. I can't even tell you, I have been to Italy, Germany, France, Belgium, UK, um, Netherlands, uh, Germany, I think I said Germany, Guam, Cuba, Japan, uh, uh, Jesus, uh, Africa, the Middle East, um, doing something that is really, really cool. I don't know why I never got involved in the military. I, I really just have no idea. Um, the respect that I have for military is massive. The respect that I have for uniform is huge. The respect that I have for a badge is massive. The fact that people have a job, and y'all, anybody who wants to talk about bad cops and all the other stuff, listen to this episode. Um, we stop the conversation pretty quickly once we start talking about it, but it's something that is almost infuriating. Yes, there's a couple cops out there that are fucking dickheads. We get that, we understand that, but it is not the masses. People are taking a job where they can lose their life every single opportunity they go to work. Look, I go to work. I don't have a fear that I'm going to lose my life. I don't have that that opportunity for that. For just It's not something that's in my life. It's just not there. Um, and this is something that they do on a daily basis. I cannot express my gratitude enough for a four a group of four guys who allowed me to be a part of this. And a couple of those guys have been on the show. So um, so we're going to do that thank you really quick. We're going to do it fast today. We're going to talk about Panini Pete. Uh, Pete Blome out of uh, Alabama. Uh, you can follow him at, at Panini Pete. He is uh, an amazing friend, uh, an amazing friend. Uh, I, I, I love this man. He is, he is a good friend to me. Um, and I appreciate everything that he's done for me and everything that he does moving forward. And I'm, I'm, I'm proud to have him as my friend. Uh, Stretch Ruminer out there in uh, Kansas City. Stretch, uh, uh, an amazing guy, unbelievably talented, creative, wonderful businessman. His creativity is never ending. And uh, he was one of the guys that invited me on to this. Uh, Gorilla, who was one of the original four, who I've never met before. 
I've never met this man, but uh, I am a part of this group. Um, and then the final is a gentleman named Hodad, uh, Mike Harden, who passed away about two years ago at a very young age of 46. Uh, he was an awesome individual. He was my friend. Uh, that death hit me hard. Uh, I, I traveled around with him and I chatted with him and I talked with him and I listened to him. And the one thing that rang true to me that made me feel the way that I feel about being a part of the mess lords is listening to him talk. He always said, I'm not a chef. I make burgers, man. I make burgers. But his passion for what he does for the military or what he did for the military was deep. It was something that that I, I, I mean, I never, I never realized it until after he had left how much he loved it. And the family that he left behind with his son and his daughter and the business that he left behind was huge. If you're ever out in San Diego, do me a favor, stop into Hodad's and uh, say hi to everybody. Just, just give a quick shout out. Say hi to Jeremy, who's one of the guys who runs that property, and say hi to Shane, who owns it now, that, that uh, Hodad, Mike left it down to him. So um, I, I get to travel all over the world. So why am I telling you this? Because Sunday I leave. I am on a little mission. I'll be gone for about 12 days to go and cook for the troops uh, in, in, a, in an undisclosed area. I can't tell you guys where I'm going or any of that. I, I will tell you that I'm going to the Middle East, um, but I can't tell you where. Uh, I'm really proud to be able to do this. This is one of my tours. Um, I'm the leader on this tour. Uh, you know, I get to coordinate with all the chefs and put everybody together, which has been really hard to do over the last couple of weeks because the last couple of months, just because of the amount of, of business that I have going on, the hard work that I've really been trying to do. So, um, we work with Navy entertainment, uh, which is huge. Uh, you know, USO typically gets a lot of the love out of here, but, um, um, Navy entertainment works directly with MWR, which stands for morale, welfare and reef. Um, and, uh, and recreation. So we get to go onto these bases and hang out with these guys and cook with them and talk with them and shake their hands and thank them and give them a little bit of love um, uh, from home. You know, uh, I mean, these people are thousands upon thousands of miles away from their homes. And, and for me to be able to sit with those guys and talk and bullshit and buy beers and sit in a chief's mess in Africa at four o'clock in the morning, listening to Jim Croce, you don't get that shit anywhere. There is a bond that is between military, which is unmatched. There's a bond between the uniform that's unmatched, bond between the badge that's unmatched. And that's something that I have a tremendous amount of respect for. So ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for all that you do. If you're in the military, send me a message. I want to thank you personally. All right. That's what I got for you. That's my kind of spiritual little bit in the beginning. But you know what? I am unbelievably excited about this episode. Uh, I have interviewed a lot of people, and today I've interviewed uh, a really cool dude. I, I, I really, I really have a lot of respect for this guy. Um, he has been uh, on TV shows. He's been on, uh, I mean, just you know, a whole bunch of stuff. He's been a cop. He was a cop for thirty-two years. Um, he was, uh, he was special for, or he was um, uh, SWAT for multiple years, for 22 of those years, 16 of those years, actually. Um, this is a, a, a pretty awesome dude. His name is Jim Viglica. Uh, he, uh, was, uh, he was a cop in Boston in a little town um, up there. 
Uh, he was also on Mark Burnett's Expedition Impossible in 2011. He was uh, also on John Cena's American Grit um, on Fox uh, in 2016. And one of the neat things about this guy is his service and his record and what he's done. Um, and on top of all of that, he got involved in something really cool called the Reality Rally. And he's been out there for four years, 12, 13, 14, and then again in 18. So everybody do me a favor. You know what I'm going to say? Sit back, relax, put your headphones on, turn the radio up really loud, get the kids out of here. Because today on Duffified Live, I got Jim Vaglica, man. Rock and roll. Let's make this happen. Let's get uh, a big, warm, duffified live welcome to Jim Vaglica. What's up, man? Correct. Yes. So, am I am I going officer? Am I going? What, what what's what's the title that what, that I need to be respectful with? Well, uh, for the, the the last twenty two years of my career, I was a sergeant. Okay. Um, but you can just call me Jim. All right. I'm cool with that as well, man. So, hey, Jim, why don't you do me a favor? Why don't you start off real fast with how people can follow you on your social media, your websites, whatever it is. All right. Yeah, I'm I'm uh, hooked in with um, all the social media, but I, I, I don't put a, a hell of a lot of time into it. Probably um, if you really want to contact me, you can get me on Twitter, which is just my name at Jim Vaglica, V-A-G-L-I-C-A. Um, and you can find me on all the social media just under Jim Vaglica. Perfect. Perfect. So, so I, I guess my big question is one, so you were a cop for 22 years. You were a sergeant for 22 or you were a cop? I was a cop for 32 years. Oh, geez. You were a sergeant for 22. Correct. Okay. So what, what made you go into that, uh, into that line of work? I mean, I've always wondered why it is that people would go into something like that, knowing that there's literally a danger on a daily basis? Well, for me, it wasn't the typical route. Okay. So I grew up um, on the streets of Waltham, which is uh, a, a city suburb of Boston. It's about eight miles out of the center of Boston. And um, so my, my parents, they were old school. They, they worked constantly. And, um, I was basically just running the streets with my boys. Um, no direction. I graduated high school with zero plan, zero direction. <laughs> right. Um, the, the three guys that I hung with the most growing up, they all ended up doing time. Um, wow. one of them was actually shot by the police, uh, who end the, he ended up being my, the fir my first partner, which was another strange story. Oh, the guy who got shot was your first partner? No, no, no. The guy who shot him. Get the fuck out of here. The guy who shot my buddy ended up being my first partner. I don't know if the higher ups planned that or, right. you know, or if it just happened. But anyway, uh, yeah. So I was going nowhere fast and um, in the wrong direction. Um. Uh, I, I, uh, I ended up, um, going to like a community college because I had nothing else to do. And so I was like in the first semester was like slow class for me. And then they said, all right, why don't you choose a major? So I looked at all the majors and they all just looked lame and, and not me. And the, the only thing that kind of had any interest was, was law enforcement. So I said, all right, frig it. I'll just, uh, let me try this. It seems interesting. And wow. 
the the very first police exam that I that I took, uh, I scored a ninety nine. Oh jeez. You know, I got the results back and I was like, I still didn't know what the hell happened. I was like, that must have been an easy friggin' test if I got a 99 <laughs> on it. Um, fast forward, they called me up and said, hey, uh, you want the job? So I had barely turned 23 um, and, and I got hired. Wow. And you got hired in the town where you grew up? Yeah, in the city of Waltham. Which is now, now, I mean, is that pretty typical? I mean, I know Boston's a really tight knit community and the air, surrounding areas and everything. And um, I, I mean, is that kind of typical the way that that works or? Yeah, because um, in Massachusetts, you take uh, what's called a civil service exam for police officers. Okay. And, and you have what they call residence preference. So the city that you live in, you get, you get preference. You're at the top of the list. Uh, in the city you live. So most people get hired in the city they live in. Okay. Now, now, how does that work on a, I mean, look, I understand the difference between friendship and the law, but how does that work with you being a guy who ran around on the streets, your buddy got shot? First off, in a minute, I'm going to go back to the fact that your first partner shot your buddy. Yeah. So, but, but how does that, I mean, I, I mean, how does that dynamic work when you're a guy who was literally running the streets yourself and now you're moving into, you're the enforcer. Yeah, it was a, it was a strange transition. Um, and, you know, I would run into my boys out on the street and, and, you know, if I could, if I could cut them some slack, I would, if not, you know, hell they get, they're getting locked up. You know, what, wow. what can I do? I, I, I've locked it's up family. Job. I've locked up friends. Oh, man. Um, and, you know, sometimes it actually works out good for them because, uh, you know, I'd come into work and I'd look at, you know, who's in lockup and, you know, there's one of my buddies in there. So uh, I'll grab my Coke and a candy bar or something, a newspaper, <laughs> give it to them in his cell, especially if they're in there like the whole weekend. They're, uh, they're really happy that I'm on shift. <laughs> nice. We got to make Christmas a little tough when you arrest somebody who's in your family. Um, whatever. You know, <laughs> it's but it's uh, part I'm, of the job. Yeah, I'm. I, you know what? I'm. I'm living in the real world. Um, and uh, if if you're an asshole, I'll tell you you're an asshole. Right. If you're full of shit, I'm gonna throw a bullshit flag at you. So that's just me. All right. So all right. So now let's go back to the fact that your first partner shot your buddy. Yeah. I mean, how does that, how does that even come, how does that come up in a conversation? Did you know that he was the guy and then they partnered you with him? Oh yeah. I knew, I knew him. He was actually, um, he grew up in the neighborhood near us, okay. the, the cop. Um, and he was a real hard ass and, and a, a, a tough guy, legitimate tough guy. Um, they both were actually, my buddy was, my buddy was feared. Like my buddy was, um, when he got to high school, like everyone in the entire school was afraid of him. Right. And, um, so he, he, uh, he had a really rough childhood and upbringing. His parents used to beat the shit out of him constantly. Oh, um, so one night he just got hammered and I think he was, he had it in mind. He was going to be, uh, uh, do a suicide by cop thing. Oh, good. So he went out and he started trouble. I think he threw a boulder through the window of Burger King. 
And um, when the cops showed up, he had a knife and, you know, they drew down on him and he just walked forward with the knife in his hand. So That's he got popped. Luckily, right. he didn't take a fatal round. Um, and yeah, so it was like, I think less than a year later that um, I'm, I'm getting, I'm going through the hiring process and I, the, uh, the interview, the dreaded interview with like, you know, five cops and I'm sitting in the chair in the middle of the room and somebody threw it out there. Hey, you know, didn't your buddy get shot by, uh, so-and-so I said, yeah. He said, you know, what, uh, what do you think about that? And, um, I said, you know what? I, I wasn't there. I can't, I can't really take a side on that. I kind of danced around it a little bit because I wanted to get hired, you know? Right, exactly. <laughs> but yeah, does that uh, answer the question about how that went down? Yeah, I think I got the, I think I got the gist on that one. All right. Um, what's that like as a 23-year-old kid sitting in a room with a bunch of cops around you asking you questions when you're ultimately, your ultimate goal is to be one of them? Yeah, it's not easy. It's, uh, it's, it's the hot seat. I mean, and, I, I, it's it's yeah, one of the things. Like an hour, right? Go ahead. And they, they ask you they ask you questions um, that you you really don't you can't you can't really answer them. They'll ask you, you know, uh, what if you what if you pull over? What if you pull over a brother officer and he's drunk? What are you going to do about it? Oh. You know, shit like that. That's a big one, dude. What do you do? Okay, so so what is your answer to that question? I don't even remember what I said, but I'm sure it wasn't good. I, I don't know. Uh, they don't expect you to to really know the answer to that. I think they're looking for something like really bizarre in, in either direction. You know, right. like if you say, I would lock up my mother. I don't care. Right. That's one direction. And then if you said, um, there's, you know, I don't care what the, the cop did. I'm not going to arrest him. Right. You know, that, that's the other direction. So they're, yeah. looking, they're looking for something in the middle. And I think they'll accept just about anything. Right. So there, there's your advice for anybody who wants to be a cop. Find the middle of yeah. the road, right? Nice. Right. So, I mean, look, I'll tell you what. I travel all over the world. And I have met a tremendous amount of people through military, through everything else. And I don't know what it is, but there is a... There is a toughness to Boston that I find is unmatched in any other city that I've ever been in in the world. Really? I, I'm, I'm not even, and now look, I'm, I'm not, you know, I mean, I'm talking about, I'm talking about guys that I've met all over the world. I've got buddies who live up there that are, there's some, there's some tough dudes, man. I mean, and I don't know if it's that upbringing within Boston. I, I don't know what it is, but I mean, like even now I'm talking to you. Eh, got a little fear. I mean, you're, you know, you're kind of a badass, dude. I mean, I'm not going to lie to you. If you pulled me over, I'd be like, ah, oh, fuck, I'm screwed. You know, but there's something that is, that there is to be said about, and I'm from Philly, man. Like yeah. I, I'm no stranger, yeah. but there's something about guys from Boston that there is that you guys are kind of badasses, man. I, I don't know. I, I guess I never really thought of us being much different from any other city in the country. 
I mean, I, I think, you know, what, when it comes down, I think the accent is one thing because there's an <laughs> accent that is so, look, I've got my own Philly accent. I'm not going to play, yeah. but there's something about Boston that you guys just have. And I think that whether it be through the movies, whether it be through, uh, you know, I mean, shit, just, you know, I mean, we're, we're all starting to see these movies that are coming out about Boston strong and the guys that were, that were involved and, and first yeah. responders and the cops and all that stuff that were involved. And including, I just watched one the other day about the guy who lost both of his legs, that first guy who just happened to be standing there waiting yeah. for his girlfriend, like all that stuff. But I don't know. There's just something about Boston that, that has such a huge amount of respect for one, I think for anybody who's from Boston, from Boston people, but from the outside looking in as a guy who travels the world, you guys are kind of badasses. I'm not going to lie about it. No, I mean, let's talk. I mean, the, the Bruins, I mean, come on, man, right there. You guys are beating us anyway. So, <laughs> but all right. So, so let's kind of, let's go forward a little bit. So now you're, you're in for a while. You've, you've been a cop for a little while. What are, and I'm super interested in cops and the dynamic of it because I have a bunch of buddies of mine that are. And one of the questions that I ask them is like, what is one thing that you will never forget, whether it be an arrest, a situation, what is one thing and whether it can be a generic conversation, because I'm sure you can't use names and all that stuff, but what is one situation over 32 years that you will never, ever forget? And that's a tough one because that's that, 32 that, years. Yeah, that's, that's, that's a, uh... Almost an impossible question, but um, so um, it, in in toward the end of those thirty two years, I spent sixteen years on a regional SWAT team. Right. So, and when I say regional, we covered um, most of uh, northeastern Massachusetts. So, anytime they needed a SWAT team within um, over fifty communities my team would get called. So I was, I've been on hundreds of SWAT missions. Um, so, it's, you know, answering that question is, is so difficult. Uh, you know, I've, I've been to a, I've been to a, a, a homicide scene with seven bodies. Um, you know, I've seen, I don't know. I, I've seen. It's a tough one. <laughs> yeah, I mean suicides and and murders and stuff. Uh, weird. All right, so what? Um, <laughs> I know it's a tough one, dude. I ask some tough questions sometimes, but I'm really interested. Like when I interview chefs, I always say, "What is the worst? What's the best night you ever had in the kitchen? What's the worst night you ever had in the kitchen?" So, so let, let's. I mean, what's the best day on the job that you ever had, and what's the worst day on the job that you ever had? Shit. Yeah, I'm tough sometimes. Yeah, you, you know I mean, what I mean. Interviewing chefs. I don't probably, I don't know the worst. Oh man. Worst day. Luckily I, I've never had one of my officers killed in the line of duty. Okay. Um, but I've, I've worked, I've personally worked with five guys who took their own life. Oh jeez. So those, those are tough. Um, Luckily, I haven't been, I wasn't on shift when, when that occurred. Um, oh, man. You know, there's just so, so many calls. Yeah. I mean, want, all right. One thing. All right. So you want, want to hear something interesting that I found interesting. Yes. That's kind of just wacky, just kind of out there. Okay. <laughs> so I go to a suicide. and. 
the guy was down in the basement. So he had, he put a shotgun in his mouth and, um, you know, um, in, if you know anything about shotguns, you know, the, the, the nine pellets come out. We're talking double odd buck. I believe that's what he used. So, so the okay. nine pellets come out um, in a clump. They're all take, they're all, they're, they all stay together and then they slowly spread apart. But anyway, there's a tremendous amount of gas that comes out of the barrel right. during that blast. Okay. So the guy's laying on the, uh, the, the basement floor. And I'm looking at him, and uh, I'm, I'm, I look at the top of his head, and there's a hole. It's it's uh it's about the size of a silver dollar, okay. So it's not a giant hole, all right. Um, and then sitting right next to his head on the on the cement is his brain, and okay. it's it's a complete brain. It's a whole brain, like you seeing a jar somewhere. Really? So what happened was the pellets went through, they made that small hole. Right. And then the pressure built up inside his cavity. Oh, the gas. And and you know, the brain is spongy, right? Sure. So it pushed the brain out through this little hole and then it just snapped back into a complete normal brain. brain. Holy shit. Yeah, it was so amazing. You know, that's something that's something that uh, is not not easy to forget about. But I mean, are, and, and do you kind of look at that and gag or do you look at that and go, no, no. holy shit? Yeah, no, there's no gagging involved. Um, <laughs> but I tell you, the only time um, I would ever gag, it, it's, it's nothing that I'm looking at. It's the smells. No. Oh yeah, that's what that's one thing that I have heard is that, that that especially going into an apartment building or a house where somebody's been deceased for a couple of days and that sort of oh, stuff yeah. that there's a stench that you will just never ever forget. It's it, and it's it clings to your clothes. Oh man. So I I mean you go home with it right on you, you know what I mean? Um and I've been to scenes especially in the summertime and and um you know people that live alone and they're in there for like three weeks. And, you know, I pulled up and you, you, when you're outside, when you, when you pull up um, to the house or the apartment building and you're outside and you can smell it, you know, it's going to be really bad. Yeah. Especially walking in that. So what is that, you know, like in the movies and all that stuff, you always see them put like something under their nose. What is that? Well, you know, that's, that's uh, <laughs> an old trick. It was, it's, it's a Vicks vapor rub. Oh, okay. So kind of you know, dis- disguise. But yeah, I'm not going to carry that shit. I've never done that. Um, you just, uh, you, you go in there, you open up all the windows and, and you just deal with it. Just do your job. Yeah. Just like yeah. anything else, you just do your job. Yeah. Wow. So now how does this, now are, are married kids, family, any oh, of yeah. that? Yeah. Yeah. I've been married uh, to uh my lovely wife for like 30 years, um, still going strong. I've got two adult kids. Uh, my, my son, Anthony is 28. My daughter, Christina is 27. Um, they, they both, uh, 
have have uh, moved on from from the house. So we've been empty nesters for quite a while, and uh, it's great. We have um, we have a date night maybe two or three times a week, and oh, nice where we have a good time together. That's cool, man. And 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 how does that does that family dynamic have have an effect on the way that you did your job. And and that's that's kind of a weird question because I think it's pretty vague. Were, were there ever times where you were in a situation and you thought to yourself, I got to make it home today? I, and I'm sure that's a, such a vague question. No, no, not, not in the moment. Okay. You never think about that in the moment. Um, I actually never thought about it much at all. Yeah, you just, you just, it's a separation of home and... And family. I mean, home yeah. and job, really. Um, the family can pay the price. Like, you know, um, I worked uh, split shifts almost my entire career. So I would, um, I'd, I would work, every, you know, all three shifts every week, uh, you know, because cause I, I would I'd work an overnight shift. I'd work an evening shift. And then I'd work uh, a day shift with either training or court. So, you know, I could be awake or asleep at, at any given hour of the day. Right. My life uh, for most of the 32 years. So, you know, you get grouchy. I, I definitely was, uh, was in a bad mood quite a bit. So, yeah, the family kind of pays for that. And um, I'm, I'm, I feel bad about it now. I'm trying to make up for it, you know. Yeah. I know the feeling. I do the same being a chef. Different different scenario, but not being home and everything else. I mean, right. at this point, I fly 80,000 miles a year. Wow. So, you know, I mean, I, I I get that. And I've got two little girls, 17 and 14. So um, how was it How was it being a cop, seeing what you do, being in Boston and, and raising kids? I mean, the things that you saw, you know, I have conversations with my girls all the time. Like right now, I say to my girls, my daughter's going to a big concert in two weeks. And my whole world is, I want you, if you're going to have a drink, you're going to have a lid on the drink the whole time. Keep a straw on the drink. Only drink from somebody that you know. Like, I'm scared shitless. And I'll say it out loud. Like, I'm afraid for my daughter to go to this event. and But I can't let my fear stop her life from living. How is that as a cop seeing what you've seen and accidents and DUI and, and yeah. all that stuff. How are you doing that with your kids at during that time frame? 16, 17, 18, 19, 20. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's always, you know, don't do this and make sure you do this. And so it's, so it's, yeah, definitely um, a lot of warnings and a lot of advice and uh, a lot of yelling if that doesn't happen correctly. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, uh, you know, I, I think you're just more security conscious because you see what happens, you know, yeah. like I, I would see um, accidents at work, car accidents. All right. And, and I, I've been to some horrific crashes where people walk away because they had their seatbelts on. Sure. And I've been to, you know, basically almost fender benders where people are totally screwed up or dead because they, because they didn't have their seatbelt on. So it was hammered into my kids. You're going to wear your seatbelt every time you're in a car. Right. Uh, and, and, and that's, that's, uh, that's just great advice. Anybody who doesn't wear a seatbelt now is there's really something wrong with you because right. 
It's it's your chances of getting killed with your seatbelt on are so minuscule at this point. Um, yeah. So getting back to your question, it was just a lot of advice on how to be safe. Right. Right. And and how is it? You, you know, I mean. In the last couple of years, we've seen a lot of negativity. We've seen a lot of bullshit that has been going on. That's that's the wrong word to use. We've seen a lot of negativity with cops and all of that. How, what was that like for you? I mean, being on the street during a lot of this stuff that was going on on all other parts of the country. Well, um, so I was already on the job when the whole Rodney King beating occurred. so that was, that was pretty much the start of it. That was like, for, for me in my career, that was like uh, the, the worst that I had seen as far as uh, people, people being pissed off and, and, and um, anti-police sentiment sure. within the country. Right. Um, and... I, hopefully it, it's hit a low point and now it's getting better. I think it might be getting better a little bit at a time. Right. Um, yeah, that's a, that's a whole thing that would, that really aggravates me. Um, we don't even have time to, to talk about all that, but yeah. Yeah, just definitely I'm really aggravated by it. Um, all the, the statistics uh, point in the, in the other direction Sure. You know, there's, I tell you, I tell you one thing that really pisses me off when someone says the, uh, the institutionalized racism in the police department, right? That drives me out of my mind. Sure. Because it's total and complete bullshit. Right. But anyway. Okay. uh, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, let's not go there. I got you. We're going to walk away from that question. We're going to step right away from it. All right. Hey, guess what is more fun than stepping on a Lego or stepping on something in the middle of the floor in the middle of the night when you're not expecting it? Yeah, exactly. Something more fun than that is going and shopping for car insurance. I had to do it a couple of months ago and it took me hours upon hours. I called people. They're asking me all this different stuff. What do I want? What do I need? And all I really need is the basics that are covered, like the basics by law. And I'm super happy because I don't need all the extra stuff. All right. So what do I do now? Well, I spent all this time on the phone. I spent all this time online. I spent all this time talking to people that I had no idea was going on. And then I find out about these guys. Cover.com. Cover is an app that's designed to make insurance, like buying insurance, super, super easy. You can just hop on. All you got to do is take a picture and you can request a quote by phone. The app searches policies from over 30 different providers to get you the best, the absolute best rate for your car, your home, and pretty much anything else you're going to need. I got a bike, so I had to get two different policies. All right. The coolest thing about this, you can request a quote via the app or on the phone at any time. The app does all of the comparing for you. It looks for policies that meet your needs. Over 30 different insurance carriers, 30. Do you know how long 30 insurance carriers would take to look online? Like a full day. And then you'd shoot yourself because it's horrible. 
Okay. The app finds the right coverage level as well. It helps you get the level of insurance that best suits your needs. It is super, super easy to sign up. You can get an initial quote ready for this in two minutes after completing the details. All right. It will text you automatically with an initial quote. All right. It's super convenient. All you guys have to do. And look, if you want to talk to somebody, all you got to do is give them a call. So what I want you guys to do is save some time, save some money, and seriously, save your brain because trying to find insurance is a pain in the butt. Go to cover.com forward slash Duffy. It's going to get you started. All right. Here, here you go. Ready? All right, here we go. Ready? Cover.com forward slash Duffy. That's C-O-V-E-R dot com slash D-U-F-F-Y. Get yourself some money sent back. Cool? Got it? Good. So how does it get to a point where you are now on Expedition Impossible with Mark Burnett, American Grit with John Cena, yeah. and, and, and to the point that you and I are having a conversation? I mean, what, where did that, what, what led you in that path? All right. So um, I think I was in my 30s and um, I, had, I, I loved to compete. My whole life, I, I loved playing sports and I loved competing. And I was always looking for a new challenge. And so this was at the time um, when uh, the show Survivor was really big. Right. And so, um, you know, I looked at it and I said, hey, you know what? That looks like an awesome challenge. And I would love to try it. So, you know, I sent in a, a videotape. And, and back, in, back in the day, it was, it was an actual VHS. You know? I remember, trust me. My first time on TV, I've been on for 15 years, dude. I remember the first VHS tape, and I think there were three or four of them that I sent through to a producer. Yeah. And it cost me like nine bucks to ship it to <laughs> Tennessee. I remember that 100%. Yeah, so, uh, of course, I never heard back from, from Survivor. And, you know, <laughs> you know they, they don't even tell you. They don't even tell you, yeah, we got your stupid tape and we <laughs> threw it away. Um, but... Like like a year later, um, maybe even longer than that, I get a phone call out of the blue, and this dude's like, um, "Yeah, my name is so and so, and I'm a uh, a casting director, and and you don't know who I am, but I know who you are. I saw your tape. Um, you know, now I'm working for another company, and." I've got a show that uh, that I would like you to apply for, and and he basically told me uh, a really vague premise, and he said, "But listen, um, we're doing teams of three, and I want to put together a Boston area uh, police team. Hmm. So you go out, you find me two other Boston area cops, and then you get back to me." Go do my job for me and then give me a call. <laughs> nice. I like that. Yeah. So, um, uh, yeah, I, I grabbed um, one buddy who uh, knew all about camping and he could build anything. So I figured he'd be good. Plus, I plus I'm thinking I, I, I need to spend like a, a month with this with this person. So someone who's not going to drive me insane for a month. So. Right. Um, I reached out to him and I said, hey, what do you think uh, if we grab a female? I think um, that would make us look attractive as a team. Sure. You know what I mean? Because we weren't selected yet. We were still in the process. So I thought if we had a female on our team, that would make it more interesting and it would sell better. 
So he said, yeah, that's a good idea. And I said, who are you thinking? And we both said the same thing. We, we only had one girl in mind. Um, and her name was Danny Henderson. And she was a uh, former military and, you know, just a tough girl and a really funny girl and tons of energy. Um, I reached out to her. She thought I was full of shit. Uh, but I finally convinced her that I'm, I'm serious. And uh, we put together a pretty good uh, video of the three of us. Uh, and we just moved ahead, moved ahead. It's all it's all step by step by step. And uh, yeah, we, we got on. We um, it took us like uh, maybe six weeks in the process. And then they still wouldn't even tell us where we were going. Right. Um, and then like a week before the, the information got got leaked by accident. And it said Morocco, oh, which. Geez. I didn't, I, I had to Google it. I didn't even know where it was. Um, so it's, it's Northwest Africa. Right. Um, yeah. So it took us like 24 hours to get to Morocco and uh, holy shit. What a, what a, a cultural difference it was. Completely, completely it, different world. Um, Mark Burnett was, was with us for probably the first 10 days. He was, he was right there. And how long, how long was the whole, how long was the process? How long were you away for? I was away for a, about a month. Okay. How, how does that, what do you, you go to your, you go to your superior, hey, I'm taking 30 days and I'm taking two with me. Um, luckily, <laughs> my chief at the time was uh, a fan of uh, the amazing race, I think. Oh, cool. Nice. So, Oh yeah. So, I mean, everything in, in uh, reality TV is a secret. So you can't, you can't tell them anything. Right. Uh, so I, I told them as much as I could. And, and uh, also it was a good thing that we still, we had um, a vacation time built up. Right. Um, it was actually the first of the year. So, you know, we, we got all our vacation time January 1st. So we hadn't burned through it yet. So, um, yeah, we had enough time and, and we just, we used our, our time off to, to, uh, to go away for a month. Nice. And so what now, so you're out in Morocco, what yep. kind of stuff were you guys, what kind of stuff are you guys doing? Oh, insane. Totally insane stuff. You know, um, there's the big three reality shows, which are big brother, survivor, amazing race. Okay. Right. And then there's all the rest. Yeah. But, um, as far as experience, it, like my experience on, on a show, um, Expedition Impossible was the best experience anyone could have. Wow. You know what I mean? Yeah. Because, yeah. you know, the way I look at it, uh, you're on Survivor, you're, you're, you're starving and, and you're uncomfortable, uh, the whole time. Um, big brother, you're stuck in a house with a bunch of crazy people and you're insane. Uh, amazing race. They spend way too much time on planes. Right. Okay. Um, we, we were out, we were out in Africa in the wilderness. Um, I raced for 18 straight days. Uh, we, we rode Arabian stallions. We rode insane camels. Um, 
We were on every type of watercraft you can think of, uh, Raging Rapids. Um, uh, they threw me out of a plane. I, I went skydiving with like an hour's notice. I had a 50-second free fall. Really? Uh, we were we were repelling like um, 300 foot cliffs, uh, swimming, just anything you can think of. Um, that's what we were doing every day, and it was and every day it was a surprise. So for me, it was just a magical time. Right. How does that? I, I mean, when was the last time you repelled a 300 cliff, 300 foot cliff before getting to Africa? Well, um, my background was strange in that I was with the SWAT team, so That's we right. trained in rappelling. So you guys so, had all that training ahead, right? Right. Yeah. So you know, I had already rappelled a ten-story building, and and um, you know, I started doing different kind of different rappels. So um, you know, I, I would go upside down, and and you know, all kinds of wacky shit. I'm kind of like, you know. Um, I love a challenge. So, you know, throw one at me, dare me to do something. And, uh, it came on. I like it. Nice. Now what, now talk to me about, uh, John, about American grit. Okay. What, what is that? I mean, first off, John Cena is a pretty good dude. Yeah, he is. He's a good dude. So now what, what's the premise of American grit and, and how did that, how did that play out in your, in your world? So the premise for American grit was to take um, people, um, the, the season one, it was, uh, they found, uh, an, an array of tough Americans who had never been in the military. Okay. And then they had four cadre members, uh, who were their team leaders. Um, and, and they, they all uh, distinguished themselves in their own military careers. Okay. So they were our leaders. So it was, it was one team leader from the military and four civilians. And we were put through military style obstacles and, you know, they called them evolutions. And um, there was an individual competition that was called a circus. So they borrowed all these names from the military. Uh, and, and uh, you know, again, it was a great time. It was a great challenge. I met some, some amazing people. Um, met John Cena. He, Cena was actually there for the six weeks that we were shooting. Wow. Yeah. Um, and people ask me all the time, you know, what's, what's John Cena really like? And, and and my answer was always that I, I really can't tell you what he's like because, you know, he didn't really live with us. He didn't, he didn't hang out with us a hell of a lot. Um, but I formed my opinion about Cena through one of the cadre members. Um, his name is Rourke Denver and he was the, um, the commander of, of buds. Okay. So, so SEAL school, right? right? Buds. He he worked his way through the SEALs, finally reaching uh, the rank of commander. And um, I, I struck up a friendship with him. I have, I have great respect for him. He's one of the most awesome guys I've ever met. So we, we have had conversations since the show and he became friends with Cena. So he tells me Cena is uh, down to earth, 
just awesome, great guy that, that you'd want to be friends with. So that's how I base uh, what scene is really like. Nice. Nice. Now, how does it come to that uh, reality rally starts coming into play? All right. Well, so, no, you know what? Hold on. I, I got another question first. Okay. I got another question first. So now you have been a cop for a bunch of years. Yeah. You are on the SWAT team. You have uh, relationships and and all of that with everybody that you're working with. And now you're going on to a couple of reality TV shows. Right. Look, I, I know the ribbing that happens just amongst me and my buddies. I, I can't imagine the ribbing that was had to start happening between you and fellow guys, the Brotherhood. Yeah, that. Um, so the first show, uh, Expedition, I, I just um, I disappeared. OK, so um, the last minute I took my vacation time and and only the chief knew uh, what was happening. So the three of us on my team, we're all from the same department. Um, we just disappeared. We were, right. you know, listed as on vacation and nobody knew where we were. Right. Um, actually, actually, Danny Henderson, she, um, she told everyone that uh, her grandfather was sick. He lives in California. Okay. And she had to go uh, take care of him for a month. Oh man, that was her cover story. But, but <laughs> me, me and the other dude, we had no cover stories. We just vanished. So right, disappeared. When we came back, we still couldn't tell him anything. Sure. You know? So NDA. There was um, there was all kinds of speculation. Um, you know the the weird thing is um, a lot of the a lot of the people didn't even put the three of us together. Like, because my department was, it's pretty big. It's 145 cops, right? Wow. So, you know, maybe some people noticed I was gone and some people noticed that Danny was gone, but there wasn't too many people that actually put it together. Hey, these three were all gone at the same time. Right. But anyway, um, yeah, I came back and then when when I was finally able to spill the beans, um, the, the, the strange thing was uh, with my SWAT team, um, a few of the guys were pissed at me that, you know, that I left for a month and like they had the attitude that, that I put this TV show ahead of the team, you know? Right. Uh, and I really didn't see that coming. I, I had I had some guys who you know backed me up and said, "Hey, I, you know, I understand. I would have done the same thing." And then some of the guys uh, were just aggravated and um, and didn't even they, they never even got over it. I don't think there's uh, one or two guys that never forgave me for for leaving <laughs> for a month. Wow, man. And I know I mean because SWAT's close. You guys are close knit. You guys are literally out. You know, I mean it's and it's a it's a it's a different closeness, and you you would be able to tell me this better than anybody else. But it's a different closeness than than just being being a cop, because now you guys are are really in the situations, and you guys really do rely on each other for your lives every every single time that you guys quote unquote go to work. Exactly. Yeah. It's it's more of a brotherhood. It's um, it's it's just a bunch of type A guys, and you know I would equate it to a military special ops team. Um, but you know, they, they take it to another level. Sure. You know? Sure. So how does it, so now again, so how do we end up at reality rally? What is, what is that world for you? Cause you've been for, uh, you've gone for a couple years, 
I mean, this isn't your first run in 2018. You've got 12, 13, 14 as well in your, in your bag. Right. Right. So, um, after I did, uh, expedition impossible, uh, you know, I was, um, on my social media and, you know, promoting the show and whatnot. And I just, I happened to come across this, uh, you know, reality rally for, for reality TV stars, quote unquote. Right. And, um, I contacted Jillian who, who runs it. And I said, you know, what's this about? I think I'd like to be involved. So she sent me all the info and I had no idea that there's a, there's a, a reality TV community where, you know, people from all the different shows all know each other through these charity events. So when I went out to reality rally the first time, there was a hundred reality stars there from, from all the shows. So, and you know, I was a fan of big brother and uh, survivor and, you know, to, to meet these people that, that I had watched on TV. Cause I'm a fan. I was on a show, but I'm, I'm still a reality fan. Right. Um, you know, I was as, as, as starstruck as, as any fan would be to, you know, finally meet these people that I'd watched on TV. That's cool, man. That's pretty cool. So now let's talk about Reality Rally. It's coming up on four, five, three, four, and five of May. So in about two weeks, we're getting ready to bang this out. And, yeah. and so it's for uh, Michelle's Place. Am I correct? Correct. And that's for breast cancer. Michelle's Place is a breast cancer resource center. So, um, women who, um, for whatever reason, can't afford to, to have a test done or, um, um, anything that goes along with the expense of breast cancer. Um, the Michelle's place provides that for them. And, um, every year, as part of the, the, the reality rally weekend, you know, all, all the, the stars, all the reality stars visit Michelle's place and we get a presentation and, um, it really, it, um, there's not a dry eye in the, in the, in the room when, when this was going on, uh, Michelle's place, it, it's, um, it's staffed by incredible women. Um, and, you know, women going through treatment for breast cancer can can go to Michelle's place and they have like a they have a whole wall. Like like just for instance, they have a, an entire wall of various wigs so you can go and you try on wigs um, and they, they let you borrow them for for as long as you want. You can come back. You can you can get a new one, uh, you know, um, and, and, you know, I think they have like different bras and and stuff like that, that I, I don't really know too much about, but <laughs> that you can also go there and you can talk to, to women that have been through it. And it's, um, you know, uh, I, I believe they have like, um, peer meetings. Right. Um, so you can get emotional support when you go to Michelle's place. It's just a wonderful, a wonderful place. And, and, and also like, most charities, you donate your money and you don't see where it goes. You don't really see the, the end of your money, but you, you can go to Michelle's place and see exactly where all your money is being spent. Wow. Nice. 
And then what requirements do you have other than, or what requirements does the rally have for you other than to be, uh, to be on a reality show? I mean, uh, uh, what do you have to do to be involved in reality rally? Uh, well, you have to be accepted first of all by Jillian and then you need to raise money. Um, so each uh, individual uh, has to raise at least $700 um, to, to, to attend the rally, to attend the reality rally weekend. Um, so I raised over 1400. So now uh, that let, lets me bring a guest with me, which is my wife, obviously. Sure. Um, and we'll have a great time that weekend. We'll attend the events. Um, the, the actual reality rally is a race. It's, it's sort of like a, a mini uh, amazing race where you run all over the, the, the town of Temecula uh, and you have to complete challenges before you can move on. Wow. Um, and it's just a blast. And um, you, you go in uh, teams of four. Yeah, so I believe it's teams of four. So people who donate enough money, fans who donate enough money, um, they get teamed up with a reality star. Oh, and, that's cool. And you complete this whole challenge together. Oh, that's cool. Nice, man. Yeah. I like that. That's cool. So uh, for you, I mean, going out there and doing that just kind of follows back with you kind of doing service, man. It all just kind of comes back to that. You know, offering something um, up to other people. That, that's how I see it. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I've spent my whole life helping people and it's uh, it's still something I enjoy doing. That's cool, man. When when you're on the job, there's very few times where you feel like you really help someone. Right. You know, um, and when you do get that feeling, it's 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 really something special. It's uh, it's it's a wonderful feeling. and um, I hope to, to experience it, uh, for the rest of my life. Nice, man. So now what are you doing now? Are you still working? Are you retired? Are you? All right. You so a year ago, uh, um, I retired from the job. Um, I, I had previously resigned from the SWAT team about, about a year earlier. Uh, so I did 16 years with SWAT. I was on call 24 seven. Uh, I, you know, I lived with my phone. I slept with my phone. Sure. Um, uh, my family paid the price for that. I left birthdays. I left holidays, all kinds of special occasions. And, and my family, they, they put up with it. They accepted it. Um, and so the 16 years that, that was enough for me. Um, I actually, my final mission I decided was going to be security for the Boston Marathon um, a year after the bombings Okay, was my final mission. Wow. And were you there during the, the, the bombing? Oh, yeah. You were there. Um, my team held uh, the inner perimeter. My team did the search in Watertown, and we held the inner, inner, inner perimeter on the boat. Really? Like, when he was taken into custody. What, 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 what man, what, what, how do you, how do you just not beat the shit out of somebody when you see them? Um, 
Well, I mean, that's that's 32 years of practice, uh, <laughs> you know, of, yeah. of not beating someone up when you really want to. Right. I mean, what was the, I mean, do you mind if I talk about that for a couple of minutes? No, Are you cool with that? What, what is that like? I mean, you're sitting there, you guys have the outer or the inner perimeter around the boat at that point. Yeah. What is, is there chaos? Is it all just super quiet and everybody's doing their job because that's what you guys have been trained to do? Well, um, the, the, the entire scene in Watertown was, was chaos from beginning to end pretty much. Um, uh, there was, there was way too many law enforcement in Watertown and it was the perfect storm of, of law enforcement because, uh, everyone was there investigating the bombings. Right. So all the feds were there, all the bomb techs were there from, from all over the country. Right. And when the, the the shootout started in Watertown um, early Friday morning, like e- everyone with a badge and a vehicle just headed for Watertown. Sure. So by the time my team got there, it was a cluster, man. It was it was it was total chaos. I, we would have been better off with eighty um, percent of the law enforcement not there. Right. They so just, thousands of cops are just yeah. It, they just like the the worst thing that happened was um, was Friday evening when the when the the you know people couldn't leave their house. Okay, there right. was a it was basically martial law while we were searching for him, and so around six o'clock on Friday evening when they lifted that ban and they said, all right, you can you can leave your house now. Um, that's when that guy came out of the house and, and um, found some blood in his boat. Really? It was, you know, his boat was up on a trailer in his driveway. Right, right, right. I mean, we all remember the, we all remember the, it, it says, it's as iconic as the white Bronco on, yeah. you know, on, on the 10 in LA, whatever yeah. highway that was. But it's that same exact iconic helicopter shot from yeah. above, looking down, watching. We were all glued to our TVs. You were right. there. Yeah, so was my wife. Um, <laughs> oh my God! See, that's strange. That's a tough part. I mean, just I yeah. mean, I, I can't. Who was it? Your team that went to the boat? <laughs> that's that's another story. Okay, um, but uh, anyway, so um, getting back to when this guy found the blood in his boat, uh, so he called nine one one, which is Watertown PD, and they their dispatcher put it out over the air. Oh man. So it's called, it's called self-deployment. So again, everyone with a badge and a vehicle headed for that boat. Um, we waited for the command post to give us instructions. And you know, obviously their, their instruction was get in your armored vehicle and get down to the boat. Um, by the time we got there, which was only a few minutes, um, there was, there was police vehicles clogging the street for about a half a mile. Oh, she guys had to run in. We could not get our armored vehicle in. Uh, we had to run in full gear. And in, in that time frame, by the time we got out of the vehicle, 
and were running, I could hear the gunshots going off um, because it was surrounded. The uniforms had the boats surrounded 360. Right. And and someone yelled gun. Uh, and that was it. And that was it. It's called uh, sympathetic fire. So, okay. so, and when you're in a 360, you're actually shooting at other cops. Oh my God. Yeah. And, and fuck <laughs> Jesus. It's like yeah. mass chaos. There, um, the official report was 400 rounds shot at the boat. Oh my God. And um, was he, I don't know. Was he hit? He was, he was already hit before that. Um, okay. I believe he might have been hit again. Okay. Uh, what saved him was the engine block. It was a, the type of boat had the engine in the, in the middle of the of the, um, the, the cabin. Right. So he was he was basically behind that. Wow. Because this boat was riddled with holes. So here, here's the craziest, oddest question. Yeah. What happens to that guy's boat? Does insurance cover? I mean, that's a stupid question. But all I'm thinking is this guy's in the house. He's a retired dude. He's getting ready for the summer to come around and his fucking boat's gone. Well, the, I, uh, I had heard the story that someone uh, donated a, a brand new boat for him. Oh, that's cool. Okay. All right. Yeah. So when you guys get there, the, fo- the, the shots fired had already happened. Yeah, we could hear, I'm, as I'm approaching the scene, someone's on a loudspeaker yelling, cease fire. And um, and then um, I believe it was a, a Boston commander. Um, then he started yelling, uniforms out, tactical in. Okay. So we replaced all the uniforms when they uh, on the inner perimeter on the boat. Got it. Got and, it. And, and, you know, there was actually guys... Um, like one of my assignments was to get these three cops out from behind a shed because at that point, you know, everyone was still thinking he had explosives. Right. You know, so, so they had to hold their position behind the shed and we had to run around like the entire block um, with some bolt cutters and, and cut them out of a chain link fence so they could, you know, get away safely. Wow. Um, so yeah, we, um, we held the inner perimeter on the boat. Uh, the FBI had jurisdiction over the scene, so um, you know, they were firing uh, pepper gas. They were firing flashbangs into the boat. Um, I don't even know how he survived. I, it, it amazes me because I, you know, we've all seen it, and obviously, then we've seen movies and we've heard about the the occurrences and what was going on. The fact that that kid survived is just unbelievable. Yeah, he was he was screwed up when he finally came out, um, but it took him about three hours to get out of the boat. To get out, well, he never he never would take that final step out of the boat. He was straddling it, right? You know what I mean, and you couldn't see one of his hands. Sure, so nobody had any idea. So, so, you know, I'm thinking he's got, he's, he's going to hit a, a button. He's going to, he's going to push a, a button or whatever, and he's going to blow us all up. Um, and, and, uh, I, I kept my uh, safety glasses on the whole time because I figured if I get blown up, maybe I'll, you know, I'm, I won't be blind at least. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, which is kind of a ridiculous thing to think about. 
No, but you know, we were we were like 25, 30 feet away from the boat. If it was gonna blow up, we were all gone. Everybody was going, sure. So for three hours he was there. He just hung there. And you guys are on point the entire time. Just waiting, watching. Right, right. Yeah. So he was never supposed to be pulled out of the boat. Right. Um they were waiting for him to to either um um vo- you know voluntarily come out of the boat or become unconscious. Right. Because um, he was bleeding out the whole time. He was bleeding pretty good. Yeah. Um, and he was yelling for water too. People say that people were saying that he couldn't speak. He was speaking. Right. Um, but so yeah, the um, earlier in Watertown during the big shootout, there was a, a, a cop named um, Dick Donahue and he got shot with friendly fire um, in the femoral artery. And if you, if you know the femoral artery, it's the, the thickest artery in your body. It's about the size of your thumb. Yeah. You'll, you'll bleed out in about two minutes. Wow. So it's a miracle that he survived, but he was with a department um, called the Tran- Transit Police. You know, um, they basically, they control the subways and trains. Um, so... There were uh, there were four or five guys from from the the transit uh, special ops unit there, um, and they they took that personal. Um, so it was them who who moved up on the boat and actually pulled him out. Uh, yeah, against the orders of the FBI, that was not supposed to happen. But <laughs> nobody talks about that. No, not at all. Wow. So uh, when I was, I was actually, oddly enough, I was opening a restaurant town in West Virginia and I had met a bunch of uh, Boston cops and I met a bunch of Boston guys from, uh, from the FBI who were on the tactical force that, that did all the, the, basically the investigation to, to find out everything after it happened. And, and I'm a huge challenge coin guy. Oh, so yeah. in my collection of challenge coins, I have Boston PD and I have a Boston FBI, uh, uh, Boston bombing coin that I kind of hold pretty close. It's pretty, pretty amazing. So um, it, it, it says Boston bombing on it. Uh, you know what? Hold on one sec. I might even be able to show it. Oh, shit. Dropping them all. <laughs> I got them everywhere. I got them from all over the world, man. Some of these challenge coins are pretty awesome. Oh, this is going to be great sounding on the show. Yeah. Um, where is well, my? If, yeah, uh, it, I got some. I got some pretty cool ones uh, that I have that I've collected through the years. Um, yeah. Here, oh, that's well, you know, whatever. Speaking speaking of Boston FBI, uh, the uh, the rest of um, the rest of Boston law enforcement um, was not too happy with the uh, Boston FBI. Uh, after that whole, after the whole incident there. Really? Um, oh yeah. They, they, you know, they like to keep information to themselves. Sure. No, absolutely. So uh, here's JTF right here. I don't know if you can see that or not. Oh yeah. That's my JTF uh, with yeah. Boston Strong on it. Cool. That's pretty oh, yeah. awesome. Yeah. I got, I got a couple of pretty cool ones from, from these guys, but um. So, so that, that had to be, I mean, that, that's, and, and they just weren't happy because these guys had gone in ahead or, or what was that about? Well, the, the FBI, um, 
it's pretty much accepted that they knew uh, who the bombers were, you know, at the latest, at the latest, when the, the white hat, black hat photos came out. Right, right. Um, because uh, it's also pretty well accepted that the older brother was an informant for the FBI. Really? Oh, yeah. Um, so if, if you want to read all about that, uh, all the inside scoop is, is in a book called Maximum Harm. It's written by um, a, a local reporter. Uh, her name's Michelle McPhee. She's been working. Um, she's, you know, she's an old school investigative reporter, and she spent about two years looking into that and uh, discovering how much the FBI knew wow. that they weren't talking about and they still don't talk about. Shit. Yeah. It's an eye opener. She's wow. actually, she's doing, uh, she's got plans for a documentary focusing on that, on, on the FBI's involvement. Um, and she, she was talking to me about, you know, being a part of it. Well, I'd love to talk to her. Yeah, look her up, man. Michelle McPhee. Yeah, I'd love to talk to her. I'd love to get some some insight. I got a lot of, I, you know, I got a lot of friends that live up there, and 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 I'm I'm a I'm a big fan of Boston, uh, and it's, you know, I mean, that was a major play in American history. Yeah, I mean, that was a major major play. You know, we think about all the all the terroristic activities that have happened throughout the years. I mean, you know, from Oklahoma and and to 9/11 and the whole nine yards going through that, and and for some reason that Boston just hit home really close to a shit ton of people that live here. Um, that was a major, major day in our, in our life. Um, yeah. that's, that's a, that's a big day. So, um, well, Jim, Hey dude, I, I want to thank you so much for your time, man. And, and your stories and your knowledge and, and, and your service, man. I mean, that's a, that's a big thing. Sacrifices for family and self and, and the whole nine yards, uh, for the betterment of, of the communities that we live in. So cheers to you, man. Well, I appreciate it, Brian. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'd love to shake your hand someday. Have, yeah. a, have a drink maybe. Definitely. And, uh, and, and, you know, see what happens. I got a bunch of buddies up in Boston. Uh, I'd love to introduce you to, um, a couple of buddies of mine. Jason Santos is an amazing chef. He owns a place called, uh, Backyard Harry's or Back Bay Harry's. Um, and then Chris Coombs is another phenomenal chef who just won best restaurant in Boston, uh, really? at a place called Duav. Yeah. Um, which is a, a pretty high end, pretty awesome place. So, um, you ever want to go out to dinner? Let me know. I'll, I'll do a connection. Maybe these guys will, uh, buy a cocktail for me. Yeah. Great. Just, uh, Yep. Um, have them hit me up on, on, um, on social media. I'll, I'd be, uh, I'd be thrilled to go to one of these nice restaurants. Yeah. It's great. Yeah, absolutely. So um, it's, been, it's been fun, Brian. Yeah, absolutely. Dude. I really appreciate your time again, like I said, and, uh, and thank you so much and, uh, and have some fun out there in Temecula while you're out there and, uh, and, and, and I'll talk to you soon, Jim. Thanks for your time, brother. Thanks again. You got it, man. Have a great day. All right. Well, you know, hey, look, I had uh, I, I had no idea that 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 interview was going to go that direction. Um, I uh, that's one of the greatest things about why I like this show so much is because we we move quick, man. You know, I, I mean, these people that that I, I'm interested in, which is kind of how I get my guests, um, I'm because I'm interested in them. 
you know, whether it's somebody that I see online or on Twitter or Instagram, you know, I, I, I take a screenshot of their information and then I send it through to my assistant and my assistant really works very hard and diligently to make some of these interviews happen. So, hey, Sam, uh, this one's for you, kid. I, I appreciate all your hard work and your help. Um, I, I, you know, I mean... I, I'm kind of blown away for a second. I had absolutely no idea through my research how far involved uh, Jim was. So um, everybody get out there and if you can um, follow him, it's Jim Vaglica. Uh, he is on um, Instagram and Twitter and all the good stuff that goes with it. Um, and, and he's just at Jim Vaglica, V-A-G-L-I-C-A. Um I, I, man, I'm, I'm almost kind of speechless listening to that. I, I really hope that you guys got something fucking cool as shit out of that because that was awesome. I liked him. Um, so, hey, you know what? We're going to close it up here. Uh, I, I don't really think I can say anything that's going to top any of that. Um, Y'all know I finished my shows by thanking a couple of people. Um, this time, I want to thank... Uh, Jim and the SWAT team and the Boston and everybody that was going on up there uh, for, for, for what you guys did. Um, I absolutely have to thank uh, my two buddies who have uh, worked so hard to help to make this show uh, kind of what we are right now, which is, is a really, uh, man, what a, what a great episode. Sorry. I hate to keep talking about it, but I'm having a great day. Um, so Jason and Jerry, I want to thank you guys so much for all that you guys do. Everybody get over to radioinfluence.com. Talk to my boys that are over there. Um, let's get them uh, all the love that they need. The podcasts that these guys put out are just awesome. So many informational opportunities um, to grab education and learn about a different part of life, which is one of the reasons why I love podcasts so much because they're all different and everybody has their own style. And I hope you guys like my style. And if you do, go to iTunes and, uh, and, and, and review us, let people know, put some stars out there. Let's get, let's get this a little bit bigger and better. That's what I want. Cause you know what? My interviews are never going to end. I am always going to be an inquisitive person. I'm always going to have questions and I'm always going to be interested in what other people have to say. So, um, let's thank uh, Jerry and Jason for helping to make that happen. I also want to thank uh, Maggie Gagliardi, the amazing artist who does all of our promo pieces for us. Please check her out and support her. It is at Mag's Art, M-A-G-Z-A-R-T. And then I also have to thank Michelle out of Techno Solutions. She does my websites for us. You guys know all this stuff. I say it every single week. My name is Brian Duff. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Chef Bry Duff, or you can find me on Facebook at Chef Brian Duffy. Uh, do me a favor, guys. Thank you so much. Tell all your friends about this episode. Tell all your friends about the show. Thank you so much. Have an awesome week. Didn't get Duffified enough? Follow Chef Brian Duffy on Facebook and on Twitter at Chef B-R-I-D-U-F-F. Look for the blue verified checkmark to get exclusive content and to see what's coming up on next week's show. This has been Duffified Live with Chef Brian Duffy on Radio Influence. I'm Tracy Beans, host of the new podcast, Dark to Light with Frank and Beans on Radio Influence. It's a new show about politics, but not the way you're used to. What we talk about is actually true. And it's also stuff they don't want you to hear. So we bring it to you weekly. All the intrigue and spin and double talk spelled out for you right with my co-host Frank's special flavor of commentary. Don't miss him. He's an experience. So join us. Dark to Light with Frank and me, Tracy Beans, drops each Friday on Apple Podcasts 
Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, Google Play, and RadioInfluence.com. <laughs>